Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Happy 2022, CardioScripts listeners. We are excited to have Dr. Mary Blanton-Koval back with us today to continue our conversation about a healthy cardiac lifestyle. If you didn't catch the last episode of 2021, we were discussing the SSASS trial and cardiovascular healthy diets. So this is a sister episode where we're going to dive into other key components of a heart healthy living with a focus on activity and exercise training. So happy new year, Mary. Happy new year. So our typical cardio script format involves the review of a recent landmark clinical trial. But in this case, I think I'm just going to give a little history and background before we talk, if that's all right with you. That works. So it might surprise some of our listeners to know that it wasn't until 1973 when researchers from the UK published their findings in The Lancet that middle-aged men who had vigorous activity which they defined, which I thought was hysterical as swimming or keep fit exercises or heavy work, such as digging, or even getting about quickly for two days or more of the week had a one third lower risk of developing coronary artery disease than their inactive peers. So this was sort of like the type of research that we talked about last time with nutrition research, where it was really complex to do And without a lot of mobile technology that we have today, it was likely even more challenging at the time. So it wasn't really until the Harvard Alumni Health Study in 2000 that truly established an inverse relationship between activity or kilocals expended, as they defined that, and coronary artery disease. So this work went on to define the benefits of even minimal activity compared to none, So just sort of telling us that we had to to move to help keep our hearts healthy. And for all those who are avid runners out there, I found an interesting 2014 publication by Lee and colleagues that studied a large cohort of 55,000 participants and found that runners compared to non-runners had reduced cardiovascular and all-cause mortality. And they really showed that you didn't have to be a marathoner to reap the benefits that even running five to 10 minutes per day or walking 50 minutes at a fairly brisk pace around six miles per hour or less even had markedly reduced the risk of death. In fact, there was even some cause around the time where we can see sort of a leveling off where folks started to develop the hypothesis that there may even be a J-shaped association between excessive endurance exercise and the cardiovascular benefits, but they certainly weighing off and become evident at a low level and increase in their effect up to a certain point. So it's not been lost on researchers of the years that regular physical activity, even commuting to work by bike, which I threw in there because that's what my family does, <laughs> lowers the incidence of obesity, arterial hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, in addition to improving that cardio respiratory fitness. So it is sometimes suggested that the link between physical activity and mortality, especially given the relationship between healthy body weight and healthy diet that are rather markers of disease and are really large part genetic. However, I thought one of the more interesting studies I came across was a Swedish study of 5,200 monozygote twin pairs that documented a 20% reduction in all cause mortality with high physical activity levels compared to the physically inactive, genetically identical twin sibling. 
So it was very much one of those things where you could maybe stop saying, oh, these, these folks that are active also have a genetic component of their disease that is lower. So that was all to help our primary prevention patients and hopefully maybe spur us on on our own New Year's resolutions this year. But many more of us engage patients at a time of secondary prevention, where historically patients were immobilized after an acute myocardial infarction. Some of those who are too young to remember that, you know, patients were really told not to move a whole lot, despite the mounting evidence, especially even basic science studies showing the improvement of collateral formation, regression of stenosis, decreased platelet activation with activity. And that research really dated back to the 1950s. But I think the clinical challenge was that clinicians had trouble or fear pushing activity on an already stressed heart in patients who were largely inactive at baseline. So I think we're all really grateful for the advent of cardiac rehabilitation programs. They really went through the hardship of trying to prove the benefit because programs were small, few and far between, often had unstandardized interventions. And so it became hard to prove at the beginning of rehab programs that there was a benefit. And so it was really through meta-analyses such as one published by Taylor and colleagues in American Journal of Medicine in 2014 that really systematically reviewed the small randomized controlled trials of cardiopulmonary rehab programs and definitively proved benefit of these comprehensive programs. And then legislatively and billing changes allowed for them to be billable and standardized what care was provided. And then I think even more recently, some of the legislative changes that organizations such as ACC have pushed for to allow these programs to be overseen by our nurse practitioner colleagues should allow them to continue to grow and offer to our patients at risk who really need to get moving. So that was a brief history, Mary. I think there are so many things we can dive into on this topic, but I wanted people just to sort of know where we come from and where the science is related to exercise. So first let's talk about how you even approach this conversation with patients and does that differ in a primary and a secondary patient population? Yeah. So I was nodding along with you. I think that's, it's a really interesting history. I especially think when we start to pull in the cardiac rehab information and how that applies to our secondary prevention patients. And there's, you know, there's tons of evidence more and more now, like there's this study out of the Netherlands that showed a 32% lower risk of all cause mortality compared with participation and those that didn't participate in cardiac rehab. And that's for all the diagnoses. You mentioned STEMI, but heart failure patients and other cardiovascular indications also benefit from cardiac rehab. For me, I think, you know, the guidelines have specific minimum recommendations for movement. So the 2019 ACC AHA primary prevention guideline recommends a minimum of 150 minutes of moderate intensity um, which they define as biking, brisk pace walking. They also say swimming, but you and I disagree that swimming is um, <laughs> moderate. You can be pretty aggressive with swimming. Um, and then there's also a minimum of 75 minutes for strenuous physical activity per week. So depending on the intensity, the number of minutes per week is recommended. There are a few slight differences with the European guidelines and even the WHO recommendations, but in general, those are kind of the overall minimum recommendations. But what I really focus on with patients is that there is no minimum that's beneficial. So if I'm talking to a patient that has been very sedentary throughout their entire life, they've just had a cardiac event. I don't tell them this is the time to start training for a marathon or to try to get a RX2 wad or whatever the CrossFitters do, but that it's really just a time just to start moving a little bit, any incremental benefit over 
just sitting on the couch is going to benefit them. And we've seen data that really supports that that concept. And so I think it's really hopeful for patients that they're not going to fail because they're not going to get to 10,000 steps on their first outing, but just moving a little bit more than they were before and slowly building on it, I think is really encouraging for them. And it doesn't feel like it's an unattainable goal. Yeah. And we talked about this a little bit in our diet episode, but I think focusing on what they can do is just such a important place to start. So what can you eat? What can you do for activity and individualizing that just seems to help people get the motivation to move. So I know you work in a heart failure clinic. And as you mentioned, all of your patients are essentially eligible for cardiac rehab. So the core elements of cardiac rehab should include nutritional counseling, psychosocial management, patient education, and then of course, exercise training, which we're focused on today. How do you convince patients to participate in this program? I mean, they hear rehab. I feel like my patients always think physical therapy, wounded soldier kind of imaging of rehab, like how do you actually get them to go and explain what that program is? You know, to be honest, and this is something that I've been focused on since I started working where I work is that we really underutilize cardiac rehab at our health system. I believe we don't have a lot of available positions and it's something we've been focusing. We've expanded to a different center. We're trying to be set up that we can use some of the advanced practice providers to overview, as you alluded to with some of the new ACC legislation that would permit sort of expanding your cardiac rehab programs under that sort of leadership. But we're kind of limited by the number of spaces that are available for our patients. Um, So I spend a lot of time just talking about what patients can do on their own. But I, I agree that some of the language of like that rehab sounds can be a little bit off, maybe off putting to some patients. But I think if we frame it in a way that it's an educational opportunity and it can give them some confidence, have a lot of really nervous patients. They're not sure what their bodies can do after they've had an event or after they've been received a really big diagnosis. And so I think framing it under the, the auspices of that, it's somebody that's going to be observing you. You're going to be monitored. You're going to be safe and you can figure out what your limits are. And then that way, after you've completed the program, it, it can extend and give you a little bit more confidence when you are exercising on your own. And then also, I think you you brought up a good point before that it's something they don't have to pay for. And so a lot of gym memberships and some of those things for the patient population I serve can be exclusive to them. And so being able to exercise in a monitored environment um, that's billed to their insurance can also be kind of a selling point. Yeah. And I think that does segue though into, they still have to have insurance. And I think the patients Mm -hmm. I always worry the most about is, you know, when, when a patient with out insurance shows up to the hospital, we provide care. But when it comes to programs like cardiac rehab that are offered as outpatients, when they don't have insurance, they're not eligible to participate. And so I think we try to use generous donor funds and things to try to find ways to support those patients who can't participate in this mortality reduction service. But, um, you know, just for folks who don't maybe know where Danville, Kentucky is, I think compared to Lexington, Kentucky, it's a slightly smaller market, but still not a rural community. And so you have this experience that sort of falls off from people living in the the bigger city like I do. And I think if we were talking to our rural colleague, they see an even greater fall off just Mm -hmm. by access to a center that's close to them that provides cardiac rehab. So I think we have a lot of work to do to help bridge that gap because our patients are definitely nervous, especially the ones who experienced an ACS on beginning to be active. And I know if I can get them to go the first few times that they're hooked, 
because mm-hmm. there's so many benefits. So I just try to get them in the door and let the rehab folks do what they do well and just try to give them and their caregivers the idea that this is going to be some reassurance that you can move, that you can sweat, that you can push that muscle that just had this damage and do so many good things for your body and your heart in, in the process. So, you know, we're fortunate here to have, you know, a very good rehab group and I've enjoyed my interactions with them over the years. Not only do you have to reassure the patient, but sometimes it's the family members because their loved ones had a catastrophic event. If they've had a STEMI, you know, a near-death experience for all intents and purposes. And so sometimes reassuring children of, of patients or spouses that they're their loved one can participate safely in, in exercise is another important component. Yeah. And that segues a little bit too, because I know you, you played a role with cardiac rehab when you were here at UK as well. What role can the pharmacist play within a cardiac rehab program? Oh, I love that. I kind of thought about this after we recorded the last episode, but why is it as pharmacists that we're talking about non-medicine type counseling? We know that medical reimbursement doesn't really support preventative medicine in the same way that it does, you know, a, a physician's time to place a stent, for example. And I feel like pharmacists are often really an accessible point of contact. And in theory, we have more time than other providers to provide thoughtful and evidence-based counseling to our patients. And so my experience as a pharmacist involved in cardiac rehab is that it's just an opportunity to provide reinforcing education, reinforcing on the medications they've just been dispensed, reinforcing some of the principles of nutrition and exercise that they're also getting from dietitians and from the rehab facilitators. And I've often thought about pharmacists as sort of medical interpreters for patients and also advocates for removing or avoiding medications when possible. And through exercise and cardiac rehab, sometimes we can get to that point. So I think those are some of the main things. I mean, I had an experience where there was a patient that had had a cabbage in cardiac rehab and they didn't even really fully understand what had happened to their body. So I, I just drew a picture, a really bad picture of what a bypass coronary artery looked like. And then like sort of a light bulb went off about what that meant. Yeah. And I think the times that I interact with our cardiac rehab patients here, I find them to be an incredibly motivated group. There's clearly some self-selection for that, Mm -hmm. but a lot of our patients who enter what we call phase three rehab, where they actually join the rehab facility, like a gym when they're done. And so there are success stories all around them and people who are beginning the journey, which I think is a lot of support that they don't anticipate. And then one of the benefits we've shown in our cardiac rehab, which is also seen in the literature, is that patients who participate in cardiac rehab are more likely to stay on and be titrated on guideline-directed medical therapy. And so I often think about my role when I'm interacting with those patients as I get to see what their heart rate and their blood pressure are multiple times a week, and I get to see how their symptoms are improving. And so you know, the cardiac rehab nurse and I are on speed dial, and she knows which patients I'm following and are monitoring, and we communicate frequently during that 16 to 24 week period and use it as a time to optimize their medications. So we can still sort of be a pharmacist providing education and titrating medications within a rehab. And so I I really encourage those of you who have a rehab at your facility, who you haven't been in contact with to reach out and find what role you might be able to play. Um, You won't be disappointed in the response you get, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a great point. It's true. They are, there are very motivated patients. It's a really, you feel it's a a very impactful interaction from a pharmacist to patient. Now, you know, there are so many different types of exercise that people can participate in, in your preparing for this. Did you find anything related to, you know, is CrossFit the way to go is walking is running like 
what are your thoughts and feelings on weight training and all of the different ways someone can move their body? Yeah, right. So exactly. So is it, is it aerobic exercise? What we've traditionally thought about as cardiovascular, you know, cardiac junkies running, biking, those sorts of things. Is it resistance? Is it hit workouts? Is it whatever is kind of in vogue? And I think we're still trying to, to tease out fully. Um, but my guess is that it will be somewhere a combination of both resistance and aerobic training that offers the most cardiac benefit. As you talked about in your introduction, aerobic literature is kind of what is most well evidence-based and most supportive at this point. Um, and you also talked a little bit about, we have new technology. We have watches that we wear that um, can provide a lot of really useful information and allow for really more evidence-based research to, to take place. That has a lot, we talked a lot about bias in the nutrition episode, but we can start to eliminate that when we use some of these more, these tools that allow us to know heart rate and exertion and number of steps and distance and all those sorts of things that can help us to kind of tease that out. Um, there is a group out of Iowa state that's doing some interesting research that I found. They published a pilot study and they were looking at patients that were hypertensive. Really they were pre-hypertensive. They were not yet on medications. They had another risk factor. Most of them had a BMI greater than 30 and they put them into four different groups. One was um, aerobic exercise only one was resistance training only one was a combination. And then there was a control group. They all received the same nutrition counseling, which was basically a dash diet. And they were observed directly observed doing 60 minutes of exercise three times a week in whatever category they were assigned to. And they have really, they published very specifically what exactly patients were doing um, and at what intensity during that. So this is very direct observation. So maybe the external validity of that is a little bit not teased out yet, but definitely will be a proof of concept. In the end, the patient's baseline in the, in the pilot study, the baseline systolic blood pressure was 120 and the dystolic was 80. So they kind of had normal blood pressures. So they didn't see a big Delta. They did see in the combination group that the diastolic blood pressure was statistically significantly reduced. Um, so I think that's kind of an encouraging signal, especially because there was only 69 patients in that. So they've kind of rolled that into like a big proper trial. Um, so they've only published the methods paper at this point, but it's called cardio race. And so I eagerly await those results because I think they're going to be following them for a year instead of just eight weeks. And I think it will be a very helpful proof of concept to see if it is a combination, if it is just aerobic that we need to focus on, but they, you know, they talk about the different benefits that you might receive. So aerobic, we know it's cardiorespiratory fitness and there's cardiometabolic benefits, but resistance training, you know, muscular strength and bone density and body composition and those sorts of things that are impacted metabolism through resistance training. I could really see that there's a dual benefit to both, but again, we don't know yet. We're kind of waiting for that final result. You know, there's some increasing evidence that points to the, the mixing it up. And, you know, I found a, there's about 17,000 infographics you can find on getting people to move. I'm not sure how motivating any of them are, but the, though I've seen some interesting ones that are like, have fun one day a week, you know, spend an hour having fun or playing with your kids outside or doing something and spend, you know, three days a week trying to intentionally move for 20 to 30 minutes, spend one day a week where you purposely get up and run around your desk for 10 minutes. But I think we just continue to see evidence that, you know, you just got to move <laughs> and yeah. how you move won't, won't really affect that. I totally agree. And you, that kind of, you mentioned running around a desk, but it also brings up the concept that sitting is the new smoking. The whole sedentary data that's coming out is not great. It, it, and we've, you know, we've had it for about 10 years and it's been, the term pandemic was used to describe 
our non-activity lifestyles before pandemic. Became before we COVID. really had a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> before we use pandemic all the time in our words. And it, and it, it's really that, you know, we've gotten worse. So even though this information was available to us in 2010, and we knew that sedentary behavior was having impact on cancer, on diabetes, on cardiovascular disease, we still didn't really change our behavior as a globally collective group. The WHO reports that four to 5 million deaths per year could be averted if the global population was more active, which is insane to me. You know, we definitely have our jobs to blame for a lot of the reason that people are sedentary though. And I think that maybe bridges into encouraging people as they look at their new year's resolutions as individuals or interacting with patients, particularly those in primary prevention, that there are a lot of employee sponsored programs because so many employers are providing healthcare to encourage patients to move. I know at UK, they offer free Fitbits um, or money towards an even more advanced device. There are ergonomical groups within our facility that can help people get standing desks even more if they need it based on their job or how sedentary they are. So I'd also encourage people to always look at what their company can do for them to help make their job more active, more safe, because there are health benefits to them. And I'm sure those have been there. I haven't looked at this data, but I'm sure they translate into productivity and time at work instead of time away from work. My health system offers similar. We all have standing desks in the pharmacy. We have like a coach that gets assigned to us to help us work through movement and those sorts of things. And you can get a discount off of your health insurance. If you do that through your the organization that you work through. So you're right. There's a lot of benefits that probably go untapped more often than not by some folks um, where they could really benefit. What I always tell people is if, you know, my smokers, I talk sometimes about how often they're taking smoke breaks and can they change that for a walking break and different things. And you sort of hit a little bit on some of the other things you use in counseling with caregivers and for people who maybe don't have access to cardiac rehab or who do have sort of that caregiver fear is go on a walk together, you know, take the walk around the block together so that you're there with him, with a phone, with her, with the phone so that you're ready. If there is a problem, you know, I feel pretty assured that there won't be taking a walk around the block and then build up to a walk around, you know, two blocks and just trying to get people to move together. Is there anything you want CardioScript listeners to hear about exercise and activity in the heart? I do want to say, yes, everybody needs to be moving a little bit more than they are. But I do think that one great thing that's come out of the pandemic is all of the available, affordable, online, app-based exercise programs and those sorts of things to the point where it's almost too much to, to, to parse through. Even the ones that I had used pre-pandemic are now 10 times better than they were before, just because of user feedback and the amount of energy. So there are things that you don't have to have a lot of equipment. You don't have to spend a lot of money. And I think those are some of the things that I can't afford to do this, or I don't want to do that, but there are plenty of things that don't require a lot of investment that are cheaper than gym memberships that can be done in the comfort of your living room. And then I think the other thing that kind of think about with patients is you can tell from a quick conversation, if they're going to be an intrinsically motivated person, if they're going to be someone that needs to make, have a buddy, if there's somebody that needs the stack of evidence to convince them that they need to be moving more. So I think using some of those, like what you can interpret from what your patients and what their type of motivation strategies are, um, can help. And I love that because I think when we talk about food, I often have this guilt where I'm recommending food that I know is more expensive than less healthy alternatives. And so there are some barriers to eating healthy for sure. 
that don't exist when it comes to activity, because Mm -hmm. you can walk in your jeans. You don't have to have fancy leggings. You can do this safely in your own house. And I think you provided some great examples of how that's possible. So, you know, this is one that we can guilt-free recommend in any capacity that it's approachable for our patients. Just a minimum of 4,000 steps a day can have a huge benefit, which you can do around your living room. Yep. Absolutely. Go outside. Thank you. As always, I think, you know, it's nice to put some data behind the things that we are recommending to our patients for years and to provide you a little bit of extra resources when you're counseling your patients going into this new year. So I hope everyone has a blessed new year. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at cardioscripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.